Hi, this is Ideas on Craft, a podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and prosperity. This is Ideas on Craft, and I am here with Nonsu Obikili remotely. Nonsu is the chief economist of Business Day newspaper and a non resident fellow at the Center for Global Development. Welcome, Nonsu. Thank you. Happy to be here remotely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we are we are really in the midst of a lockdown, at least the three supposed epicenters of the outbreak, that's Lagos, FCT, and Ogun. So I just want to gauge what what do you think the effects are going to be from a macroeconomic standpoint, you know? Just a brief overview for you. Well, I think it's important to understand uh, the context, right? So in this instance, because of the pandemic, we know that from an economic perspective, the best thing to do will be to get through the pandemic as quickly and as painlessly as possible. And to do that, it is necessary to shut down some sections of the economy, right? When we say a lockdown, that's equivalent to a shutdown of some sections of the economy. Um, yeah. And so that's a deliberate action to, in a way, shrink the economy to deal with the pandemic, right? And so that's the context. If you're deliberately shrinking the economy, of course you would have a fall in, in, in if you measure it, right? Uh, because you're doing it on purpose. But the whole uh, idea is to respond to the pandemic quickly and then recover quickly. And so the real question is how we're able to get the economy started again once we're able to deal with the pandemic. And of course, to do with the pandemic as quickly as possible. That's one side of things. Uh, but from that perspective, you can't really see a slowdown in the economy as a bad thing. It's a necessary action in that sense. And we only see the full impacts once we start to try to kickstart the economy again. But in the Nigerian context, there are other issues going on. Now, this is the global pandemic. And one of the things that has happened is that it has resulted in the collapse in crude oil prices. And as we know, Nigeria is still very vulnerable to the oil industry. It still accounts for roughly 90% of all our exports. And it still accounts for maybe 65% or so of government revenue. So any decline in oil prices means a real shock to the economy. And this decline is particularly bad because you know, if oil prices drop from 100 to 70, that's a drop, but there's still inflows coming in. But this is dropping to the 20s, right? And if you add production costs to that, then we might essentially be getting almost nothing to very little uh, in the short term from the oil industry, which is a big, big shock. I think this is probably the biggest shock we have seen in a very, very long time. So that's problematic. But it's even more problematic because a lot of the emergency responses that we would have had are unavailable. In the past, we had an excess crude account that we could use to kind of manage through a couple of months until we figured out a proper response. Yep. But the excess crude account is essentially empty. And the replacement, which is the sovereign wealth fund, has very little funds in its stabilization account. Uh, so there's not much fiscal buffers there. Another alternative would have been to rapidly increase debt to deal with the short-term crisis. But again, because this is, a, this is an international pandemic, it's a global pandemic, 
international debt markets are very difficult right now. And so it's very difficult to raise funding from there. But our debt uh, position is already very constrained. As of last year, we had about a debt servicing costs to revenue ratio of about 65%, which again implies that for every one naira the federal government collected in revenue, 65% went to servicing already existing debt. So we're already kind of limited on the debt front. And as a final kind of uh, option, the nuclear option, as we say, you could always resort to monetary financing, which is what we are seeing in places like the US, in uh, the UK, where the central bank just steps in to kind of deal with the problem temporarily. But again, even on that front, we've already been doing that for a while. Uh, and it's not clear just how much space the central bank has to take that kind of action. So on all these measures to deal with the collapse in oil prices, we seem to not have all these uh, emergency measures available. And so the question now is, what do we do? How do we get through? Remember, the first part is to get through the pandemic, and the second part is to start to recover after the pandemic, right? Um, and so it's not really clear what we're going to do for now. Yeah, yeah. So given the tight position we we seem to be in, from what you just explained, what would be your? I know forecasting is not an exact science, but what would be your prognosis for the economy in the next few months? I think a few days ago, the Minister of Finance came out and said that Nigeria could be in a recession in, in six months. So is that accurate? And if true, what do you think really could be a way to avoid the worst case scenario? Uh, well, I think we might already be in a recession. Remember, we're only growing at 2%. Yeah. So you don't need to fall too far to get to below... Uh, zero. Of course, recession technically is two quarters of negative GDP growth, which means technically you can't get into a recession officially until the second half of the year. But uh, in practice, I think there has been already a, a big collapse in economic activity. And again, part of that is on purpose. Remember, we're shutting down the largest state in terms of economic activity, Lagos. We're shutting down Abuja, which is also a very big state. So you're shutting down these key parts of the economy, which means that if they are really shut down, then you should see slowing economic activity. Um, so I will, I will bet that we're already in recession now because of the lockdowns. That being said, remember the goal is to lock down, deal with the pandemic, and then recover. Do I think we'll recover out of recession in the next six months? I don't think so. Uh, simply because there are already all sorts of other issues that we need to deal with. Key one, of course, is the collapse in uh, oil prices, which does not look like it's going to recover soon. Uh, but even before that, there were already a lot of pressures building in which this collapse in the oil prices is kind of is kind of like a straw that broke the camel's back, to put it that way. Um, so I think we'll already be in a recession once we incorporate this lockdown. Um, but I don't think that we're going to get out of that in the next six months or maybe in the next year. Uh, now, what can we do to prevent that, again, you know, that question is kind of moot because if we're in recession, then the question is, how do you recover? What can we do to recover? Um, I think there are many things. As an emergency thing, one thing we can think of doing is to look for an emergency bailout from somewhere. That would give us the kind of space to deal with the issues over the next six months to one year. But barring that, I mean, I think we need to move towards a more conventional kind of policy environment 
one of the things we've seen over the last few years is that we've gone into all sorts of creative economic policy. You know, things like border closures and uh, foreign exchange windows and all these things. And I think uh, getting rid of some of those things might help the economy grow a bit faster than it was before. But ultimately, I think we need to have some fundamental changes in just how the economy works. In terms of government revenue, I think we need more fundamental tax reform uh, because anyone hoping that the era of oil prices going back to 60, 70, 80, maybe 100 to kind of save us, I think those days are well and surely over. But it's pretty obvious that there are problems with the current tax structure. And so I think we need to start that question. I think in general, we need a, a more open economic policy agenda, open in the sense of, you know, allowing people trade relatively freely, incentivizing people to participate in global markets. Uh, I'm not a deregulate everything person, but I think we need more flexible regulation that allows people to take decisions and take risks, right? And so I think if we do all these things, then in the, in the near term, then we might be able to start to see the economy pick up again more quickly. Of course, in the medium to long term, it's the big investments that count, the investments in education, the investment in health, Difference in the infrastructure, um, but that's a more medium to long term agenda. Okay, let's zoom out a bit. I mean, say this were happening like 30, 35, or probably 40 years ago, we can say that China or South Korea could be in the same position that Nigeria is currently. But I think they made some deliberate choices policy-wise, maybe to industrialize, to open up to trade, be more export-oriented, etc. Um, why haven't we been able to, to do that? Where exactly is the logjam in terms of policy in Nigeria? Um, I think our political economy has not allowed that kind of focus. Of course, we can you know, forget about the dictatorship days with all the military regimes. Yeah. Uh, in those days, the whole point was how to extract and share all revenue, right? But since 1999, democracy, we've seen a bit more freedom, but we've also seen a bit more kind of political misadventures, to put it that way. We've seen a big rise in crony capitalism and the idea of using government to kind of corner markets for specific uh, businesses. So that has kind of something we've seen. We've also seen a kind of short-termism in terms of just government spending. Right? We've seen successive governments think only about the next three, four years and how to deliver returns that give political victories. So we've seen governments focus on things like false subsidies and uh, uh, all these you know, short-term plans that really ignore the key underlying factors that grow economies in the long term. Right. I think from an economic perspective, the issue has been that the political environment has not been suitable to make those kind of long-term decisions and long-term investments in education and health and trade and exports and all that. Uh, but again, it's easy to blame politicians, but I don't think it's a result of politicians alone. I think just in terms of the development of the Nigerian voter, okay. I think these issues that are fundamental to long-term development have not been the issues that are focused on during elections. And I think that's where the fundamental challenge is. Uh, if you think about the issues that, that have driven the past elections, 
they haven't been about you know trying to boost education. It hasn't been about trying to build a proper healthcare system. It hasn't been about you know how to invest in uh, infrastructure or trade. It's been about other issues. And I think that's the fundamental challenge. Because well, if you don't have a population that is, if you have a population that puts these major investments as its primary concern, then you end up with outcomes that are not about those concerns. But isn't that a feature of the political space itself? Like uh, electorates are usually faced with, um, should I say, poor choices in terms of who to elect? Well, yes. So, I mean, our political system is very, you know, difficult in the sense that the process of getting on a ballot box is completely, you know, useless, for lack of a better word. So you end up with electoral choices that are, in many cases, not particularly ideal, having to choose between two candidates that you don't particularly like. And I mean, I mean yes, that's part of the problem, right? That's part of the issue, that once it comes to elections, especially at the highest level, the issues that count for getting on the ballot box aren't the issues that are important for policymaking for long-term development. They are other things. I think that's, again, I mean, it's always easy to kind of blame politicians, but I think it's, it's a society problem in general. And it's a challenge that we still, as a, as a society, as a country, we still haven't found an answer to yet. You wrote an article, I think January, I'm not sure now, uh, about rights-based approach to development. Can you, can you expand on that a bit? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's a very simple idea that, you know, even though we have a lot of poor people, we have a lot of uh, less educated people, people know best about their situation than anybody else, right? People who are poor know best about how to live in poverty than people who are not. People who are trading know best about how to trade than people who are not. People who are, you know, doing any kind of business know best about their business than most other people. And so the idea that, you know, a policymaker can sit down in an office in Abuja and unilaterally decide everything that should be done without taking into account the people who are actually living and who are actually, you know, living through this, who are going to implement this, I think that's, that's always problematic. I mean, most people want to get better off in life. Most people have constraints, of course, but I think incorporating the thoughts, opinions, and rights of people, I think, is a fundamental part of any kind of, you know, economic development strategy. Simply because, you know, people are a lot more active and a lot more knowledgeable about their particular conditions than most people, especially most economists and policy analysts, give them credit for. Um, yeah, that's kind of like the basic idea. And, I mean, you can think of it in very straightforward terms. I mean, the a very simple example is, you know, the decision on what to do with foreign exchange, for example, right? Okay. Uh, if I am a farmer, I grow ginger and I export that ginger to, say, China, and I'm yeah. paid in dollars, right? Who should decide what to do with my dollars from my hard work? Like, should it be some guy sitting down in CBN or should it be me, right? It's a very simple example, but, you know, a rights-based approach development says it should be me who decides what to do with my dollars. Of course, you can have regulations, rules, and all that, but fundamentally, I should decide what to do with the fruits of my labor after paying all taxes, of course. You know, 
So that's, that's, and if you have that, then you tend to have, you know, foreign exchange markets that are more pragmatic, that are more realistic compared to if you have somebody in a, an office somewhere trying to unilaterally decide what to do. Because of course, when you, when you unilaterally decide what to do, you're taking away the rights of the person who actually did the work to use the fruits of your labor, right? But that's just a very kind of simple example. Of course, you can see that in um, many other parts of the economy, you know, uh, who decides what to grow, who decides with, which port to use, you know, how do we decide what to, how to transport our stuff from point A to point B? Do I have the right to decide what to do or do I get ordered from Abuja to do what needs to be done? If you think of the border closure, for example, if yeah. you're an uh, exporter sitting down in Sokoto, it may not be particularly useful to have to export through Lagos. It might be better to export through Niger and through Cotonou or even through Togo. Uh, and if you had the right to choose what to do, then you could choose the best option for you, right? But if you have yeah. somebody who's unilaterally decided that, yeah, the Lambola should be closed and therefore everybody must have put papa, then you end up with a worse outcome. The rights of the person who is trying to export have been, you know, ridden over uh, for some development agenda, again, which I think is in our It's not ideal. Um, so that's, that's just the basic idea. That was the basic idea of that article. Now look, the best development policies are those that acknowledge the rights of the people who are the targets of development. Right. And to recognize that they are not uh, mindless chess pieces, but they are actually, you know, human beings. They actually have rights and they actually also want uh, to improve their lives. And so taking that into account should be front and center of any kind of development agenda. Okay. But where I really want to push you a bit on this uh, issue is, um, uh, I don't know, it reminds me of another paper by Easterly, Progress by con- Consent. I, I think the basic idea is the same. So now, do you think, in all honesty now, that uh, the sort of Adam Smith tolerable administration of justice and other rights-based approaches is enough at this stage in uh, development and globalization generally? Do you think that's enough to push the rapid income convergence that places like Nigeria needs. I mean, you have East Asia that went with a whole different approach. And I mean, so far, so good. It's worked for them. So what, what do you think about that? When you say a whole different approach, what do you mean? Oh, well, for example, South Korea did unconventional monetary policy, for one. I mean, they had multiple exchange rate windows, but they were more export oriented. They were more, they were highly bureaucratic in their approach. We can say that it trampled on people's freedom a bit, but they still focused on what I think were the right things, which is export manufacturing. Yes, some of those measures were relaxed after a while. And um, today we can talk about those countries in the same light as the other Western nations. So yeah, that's what I mean. Okay, well, uh, I think there are many things there. I think one of the things that people tend to forget about most of the Asian tigers, yeah, uh, to use that phrase, is that in the 60s, there was this rapid improvements in education. Right. 
even before you started to see all the rapid growth, there was a rapid improvement in education of the masses. And that served as the foundation for most of the growth that we saw in the 1980s, right? Um, now, if you have a very high population, then even if you end up with a dictator, you kind of have to have a smart dictator, put it that way, right? And as you said, even given that there were dictatorships, in quotes, the policy focus was always kind of outward looking. More exports, more trade, more interaction with global markets, right? Um, yeah. And then there's a there's a final function which I think a lot of people tend to forget when we break when we just simplify things as dictator or democracy. I think state capacity itself is independent of the mode of governance. And in many of these places, you have histories of very long states. Remember, the world did not start in 1960. Even though that's when we start collecting most data. But the world is pretty old. And in many of these places, you have a history of very strong state capacity, which, of course, means that even if you end up with a dictator or Democrats, you have you know, some of these elements of an effective state. Now, if you transition to most of Southern Africa, especially Nigeria, for example, there are very few places where you have that kind of history of state capacity. In Nigeria, prior to the colonial era, there is no Nigerian state at all, right? There is just a plethora of smaller states, some bigger, some smaller. Uh, in most of in most of West Africa, most of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, you don't have the same kind of historical state capacity that you have in some of these Asian countries, which means that the idea of trying to use, you know, dictatorial brute force to develop a place is always going to be a bit more challenging. If you think of Nigeria, for example, even though one of one of the things that you know the literature has kind of seen is beneficial for dictators in terms of promoting development is if you expect the dictator to stay a long time. That is, if you're a expect to be a dictator for 20, 30 years, then you tend to do better, to put it that way. Uh, but in Nigeria, despite all our history of dictatorships, we've, not, we've never actually had a long dictator. I think the longest we had was Abacha, if I'm correct, which was about six years, right? Okay. Which is not a long time. So even within our dictatorial past, we did not have like a strong leadership or a strong authoritarian government in the in the in, in the sense of longevity, right? We had a series of coups and a series of you know dictators come and go, always you know trying to prevent the threat of another coup and always trying to solidify their regimes, put it that way. I think a big part of that story is because there's just no history of like national state capacity in Nigeria, right? And so the idea that we can, in some way, copy the South Asian path, I think is problematic. I think just because of the history that we have, we have to tilt towards a more uh, Republican, a more kind of democratic structure. Uh, and we need to find uh, our path in that direction. And uh, look, everybody kind of focuses on the Asian tigers that grew rapidly over a short period of time. But the truth is, for most countries who are developed, there was no rapid growth. 
there was just long sustainable growth for a long time. Uh, if you think of most of the Nordic countries, for example, you would you wouldn't find episodes of 10% GDP growth and all that in their history. What you would find is just sustainable growth for 60, 70, 80 years, and they as developed as anywhere else, right? Uh, so, I mean, rapid growth is, is nice, you know, it looks cool, but for most countries, it's not about rapid growth, it's just about growing consistently for a long time. Uh, and I think, you know, giving our past, giving our structure, that's what we kind of need to aim for. Of course, we want to grow as fast as possible, but sustainability is just as important. So yeah, I don't think that we can adopt the dictatorial Asian Tigers model. I think we can adopt parts of it, which is the focus on education and the focus on trying to participate in the international economy. But I think, you know, given our history, given the dynamics of politics, we probably need a more democratic, a more rights-based uh, economic path. Okay, okay. Um, I, I think Gowon served for nine years. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think I think Gowon served for about nine years. Oh yeah, nine years. But chunk uh, of that was a war. So. <laughs> okay. So yeah, on that note, let's talk about the central bank, of course. So I mean, talking about rights and and all that. Monetary policy in Nigeria has been, I don't know, unconventional recently. I think you had an exchange with the CBN governor sometime last year, and uh, a lot of issues came up. Care is an institution that we will agree functions better when it's independent. But there's a bit of a paradox, at least the current regime, where it's gotten a bit political, at least on, on the currency issue, where uh, monetary policy is kind of doing the presidential line, at least from 2016 uh, upward. And at the same time, there is really no oversight for what the CBN can do. How have we found ourselves in, in that position? Really? Well, I should do the selfish thing and say it's what happens when you have no economists at the central bank. Uh, yeah, we have a few economists, but over the last maybe decade and a half, central bank has been filled with bankers and accountants uh, yeah. who have a different background and a different view of economic policy than most macroeconomists would have. That is kind of the fundamental problem to me. Because look, you always have issues of central bank independence. You always have issues of you know presidents wanting ABC. But what you need in that kind of situation is a central bank that can articulate the reasons why ABC are not ideal, not feasible, and that can explain an appropriate monetary policy path not just to the presidency, but to everyone in a credible way. Right? And I think that has been lacking. Uh, once you have a central bank where there's not a basic understanding of macro policy, then you tend to have all these kind of challenges. And I mean, let me just be fair. There's a lot of very good economists at the central bank. 
but very few in actual decision-making positions, which is problematic. Um, I mean, in terms of our macro policy space, I mean, it has been dominated by FX over the last five years. And everything seems to revolve around trying to manage the exchange rates, which again has led to all sorts of unconventional policies, as we say. We've seen lots of administrative measures trying to limit demand for foreign exchange. Uh, we've seen the bans on, it, on uh, use of FX for importing XYZ. I think there's still a 41 or 42 items list. Uh, we've seen all sorts of things like milk being banned, all that to try to limit demand for foreign exchange. And then at the same time, we've seen all sorts of policies to try to incentivize short-term portfolio funds to bring foreign exchange. Uh, chief of which is the you know issues in the normal market with the CBN bills, where you know CBN is essentially indirectly kind of borrowing foreign exchange at very high rates. 14, 15%, which is unheard of, right? Well, the foundation for all that is an attempt to keep the exchange rate fixed. Not fixed in any particular real sense, but fixed to the US dollar, which is a surprisingly strong currency, right? Yeah. Um, and what has happened is that you've had all these imbalances kind of build up as a result. Nigeria is not the only country in the world uh, that has its own currency. Many other developing countries have their own currencies. South Africa, China, you know, even India. But if you look at the Naira relative to these other emerging markets or you know, developing country currencies, the Naira has strengthened a lot over the last two, three years. Again, all that is as a result of trying to arbitrarily keep the exchange rates fixed to the US dollar which has been kind of the foundation for most of the macro policy. And all that seems to be maybe indirectly a consequence of, you know, a political decision to manage the exchange rate as tightly as possible. Um, so, yeah, it's been problematic and it's resulted in a lot of um, heterodox, as he says, monetary policy. Uh, but I think importantly, that kind of environment has proved difficult for economic growth, right? We've seen growth struggle, and I think that is partly because of that macro policy environment. Of course, there are, lots, there are all sorts of other issues with the Nigerian economy uh, beyond just monetary policy. But, you know, we've seen investments into short-term securities as the only investment that is incentivized, which is not ideal for a country of Nigeria's position. We should be you know, doing what we need to do to incentivize long-term development, long-term investment, foreign direct investment. What we're seeing is a push towards short-term securities, which has its uses, but again, it's not ideal for economic growth in a country like Nigeria. Um, so yeah, many challenges, many problems, but I think fundamentally the attempts to try to like maintain exchange stability to dollar at all costs is kind of like the source of many of the challenges. Let's talk about the role of the media in, in all this. I know you, you write a weekly column for a newspaper and um, it's part of the problem, public discourse on economic issues. What is the role of the media 
in, in this. I mean, economists are not really driving the conversation in the media. And um, yes, I know there is Twitter and all that, but is that part of the problem? Is, is economic education broken because the media landscape has been empty in that regard? Well, in a way, I'll say yes and no. Let me let me be a fancy statement. I'll say yes and no. Um, no, because economics is like a very weird field in the sense that for any particular issue, for many issues, you have economists who disagree. And that kind of disagreement means that there's no consensus on many things, um, which, again, means that it's difficult to kind of drive, you know, the public towards one direction if there's even no consensus within economists. But on the other side, yes, uh, a lot of the discussions around economic policy seem to be focused on trivial issues without any kind of long-term thinking. A good example would be to think of, you know, the, the discourse during the four subsidy debates in 2000 and 11 or 12, right? Uh, yeah. I think in that instance, the media played a big role in driving home the idea that the issue was corruption, not necessarily that the subsidy itself was not ideal. Um, and that definitely made an impact into the relapse of the policy. So yeah, I think the media can do a bit more in terms of like driving the debate and nudging the public towards a more ideal kind of position. Uh, but I think ultimately it's really about leadership that needs to articulate that position, right? Uh, populism is a very common problem around the world. And so if you always follow what people want directly, then you will end up in difficult situations. So it's not just Nigeria, it's everywhere. But I think leadership needs to have a proper proper policy philosophy and get the public to buy into that. And from that perspective, the media plays a role, but the media is not the key determinant of you know, the outcomes. I think leadership is a bit more important. If you have a leadership that you know has credible economic policy and that convinces people via the media to buy into its policy, policy philosophy, then yeah, the media has a role to play there. But if you have the media just regurgitate, you know, some of these more populist agendas, then, you know, you end up in a difficult, difficult situation. Okay. Before I let you go, if you had to choose between these three long-run structural forces as, as one with the heaviest hand in our affairs in Nigeria, which would you choose between institutions, geography, or history? Uh, I think it's obviously institutions. Geography is fixed for the most part. And part of the story of human development is being able to overcome your environment. Uh, and so geography cannot be an excuse. History is history. History has already happened. And even though history counts, history matters, but nobody is locked into a particular historical path. Uh, every country, every society has agency to change the direction. Um, and so I don't think history is a big, is a real constraint. 
Um, but I think the institutional capacity is where the big challenge is like. Uh, so yeah, I will lean towards the institution's answer. Although, I mean, institution is a very broad term encompassing lots of things. Uh, but even at that, I think I will lean towards institutions. Okay. I want to indulge in a bit of gossip before I let you go, finally. <laughs> um, there's an anecdote out there. Um, I, I want you to confirm whether it's true for me that um, the current CBN governor actually said, I'm not your mate. Is that true or not? <laughs> uh, well, I think it will be unfair to to only pick out, you know, a part of a, a part of what was what, what was a much longer conversation. Uh, so I would decline to answer that. Uh, but of course, I'm much younger than the CPN governor, so technically, I'm not his mates. Technically. <laughs> okay. Okay, but you're not going to get off that easy. What was going through your mind at at, at that exact moment? What, what 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 was going through your mind? Um, to be honest, I was just excited to be having that conversation in the first place. Uh, so for me, I think getting the my message across was for me the most important thing, and I think I was able to do that. Everything else was just you know secondary. Uh, but I mean, it was an interesting event, to put it that way. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Nazi. Thank you too, and until next time. You can subscribe to the podcast and newsletter on untrapped.substack.com. Untrapped.substack.com. Thank you, until next time.